Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on cinema and the Criterion Collection, a series of important classic and contemporary films. I'm Matt Peterson, joined by Nathaniel Myers. This is episode two. Our discussion tonight centers on a contemporary entry into the collection, the 2014 German film Phoenix, directed by Christian Petzold, with a fragile, riveting performance by lead Nina Haas. This is one of several collaborations between the actor and director. Based loosely on the 1961 French detective novel, The Return from the Ashes, the film tells the story of Nellie, a Jewish concentration camp survivor. Nellie's emotional and physical trauma has left her scarred in a very literal sense, rendering her face unrecognizable to loved ones, most notably her husband, Johnny. She is thought to be long dead as the war draws to a close. Once a celebrated singer, Nellie's current demeanor is far removed from the boldness required for stage performance and takes on a timidity that her close friend Lena is trying to exercise. Lena's scars are limited to the psychological, but sees hope in Nellie's circumstances, along with the formation of a new country in the Middle East where the Jewish people may be able to find a place of peace. The war has left Nellie with an inheritance she discovers her husband Johnny is pursuing. In her old haunt, a local nightclub, she attempts to reconnect with Johnny, who fails to recognize his wife, though he is taken aback by her resemblance. Nellie knows it is very possible, even likely, Johnny betrayed her to the Nazis, but she refuses to believe it. As the two spend time together, Nellie pines for her days of innocent love, while Johnny becomes eager to use Nellie's physical similarities to his wife to obtain the disputed money. They both find the past is not yet through with them. It is a story of redemption, identity, and even revenge with a powerful yet understated ending that resonates far beyond the role of the credits. This film has become a hit in North America, becoming one of the highest-grossing German films in recent years, and was released by Criterion on DVD and Blu-ray April 26, 2016. Nate, I'll hand it off to you to start our discussion of Phoenix. All right, well, thanks, Matt. Um, obviously, uh, we haven't actually talked about this movie in any significant way prior to tonight. Uh, we, I know, have a little bit of different views. Uh, I've watched it twice now. I, uh, I, d- I did it as a blind buy uh, on Blu-ray. Uh, and actually, I did that despite you telling me <laughs> to reconsider and just to stream it. Uh, I went ahead and, and kept on with the Amazon order anyway. And uh, I watched it again a second time in preparation for our talk here this evening. Uh, and I feel very strongly that this is a very fine film. Uh, I think it certainly is not without its flaws. Uh, it does have a few stylistic choices or things that I maybe question. Uh, it's also not necessarily the most revolutionary of stories, uh, particularly at this point in time, all these years after uh, having had so many Holocaust dramas or uh, different stories about identity, but I do think it nonetheless is something that does have uh, quite a lot to say about the subject of personal identity and uh, how do we define ourselves, particularly in the wake of a tragic event, uh, in, the, in the wake of something as as uh, monumental as the Holocaust. What does that say of us as an individual as well as as a people, uh, the, Jew- the Jewish people, the German people, uh, then, of course, the individuals themselves that are caught in this 
um, magnificent in the bad way, of course, uh, but magnificent moment in history. Uh, I think it really has a, a great deal of uh, sophistication in its performances uh, and is also really quite uh, nicely observed in its uh, understanding of the post-war reality that these people faced. Uh, here, they'd gone through a life that really nobody would ever want to go through. And then they go back home and realize home is not there. And uh, perhaps they themselves are no longer the person they once were. Uh, so I really uh, would highly recommend this movie uh, as, if not necessarily the greatest work of cinematic art, at least as a particularly solid portrayal of the human condition. Yeah, I'll start by saying that, I mean, I, I certainly have a different opinion uh, than you on this film. I don't think it's a terrible film. I, I think it has faults that render it pretty crippled, in my view. Um, certainly things to admire about it, and some of the points you, you make are well taken. I mean, I, I think Nina Haas's performance is outstanding, uh, and you really can't deny the power uh, that she conveys in the role. Um I'd be curious to see some of the other films that the uh, that Haas and, and the director Petzl have done together. Um, I think uh, Barbara was the last film they did before this, uh, set in East Germany or uh, during the Cold War. Um, I think that was on Netflix, but recently was dropped off of Netflix, so I didn't get a chance to see it. But I'd be kind of curious to um, look back at those. But but back to the film itself, you know, it's I, I, I struggled with just. Looking at the film as a whole, I mean, we'll get into more details, I think, as, as we, uh, as our discussion goes along. But, you know, looking at just the concept of, okay, this is post-war, you know, much of it's set in Berlin, uh, very chaotic, uh, period, very, uh, rubble-strewn period, kind of reminded me of the third man in some ways, you know, uh, really this free-for-all, um, environment where people are just, clamoring for some sense of normalcy is that you know an appropriate setting for such a, a melodramatic story or you know you can even call this story pulpy in many ways i mean it has elements of film noir that um are are, are done very well but I, I guess i struggle with with the setting of a story like that and i almost feel that the film you could say it it's uh underplaying its setting to a degree, but, you know, I think there's been this issue of, of German avoidance of kind of treating the Holocaust in a more direct manner. Uh, not being German or not being from Germany, that may be a disservice to say that, but I, I think historically we can admit that uh, Germany has had a difficult time <laughs> facing up to its past, and uh, understandably so, and this film kind of manifested itself in, in, in that regard in some ways. So I, I felt like there was kind of a clash of tone to say, okay, well, here's a, a very scarred character, uh, a character that's been through a great deal, yet we're kind of, you know, in this sort of pulpy, melodramatic story, and she seems more concerned about uh, rekindling lost love versus, uh, you know, dealing with, with what has just occurred to her. Uh, so... I get the sense of this avoidance, not only in the character itself, but maybe on the part of the filmmakers uh, in terms of, of confronting the Holocaust head on. Well, I would say, I think, 
you know, there's there certainly is a great deal of complexity to the German response to the Holocaust and to World War II. I don't pretend to necessarily have a full understanding of it. Certainly, uh, there is an element of avoidance on a certain level here. Um, but nonetheless, uh, and I just realized I said avoidance, which isn't a real word. Uh, I should have said evasion. Um, but nonetheless, avoidance hey, yeah. what was that? <laughs> I said I probably said avoidance once or twice, but that's all right. All right. So with the uh, the way in which they are trying to address the Holocaust, perhaps not in a direct way, a la Schindler's List, I think is okay. I, I don't find necessarily anything morally difficult with the way they set a story. It's a, it's a fairly common motif. You take uh, a science fiction story, you take a detective story, uh, you put it into a certain context in which it allows you then to maybe say something indirectly uh, about a particular point of of importance, a point of controversy, a historical reality, uh, in a way that perhaps allows the audience access into it. I think if they had done sort of this whole big, this is a Holocaust movie, it's a Holocaust movie, it's a Holocaust movie, uh, you would be probably, you know, less inclined to really pay attention to it. You know, we've seen plenty of those, uh, especially in America. There's been a good number of them. Uh, you know, and Polanski did a really nice job with The Pianist, uh, giving a sort of non-American perspective, you know, having been a, a Pole and a survivor himself. This one, I think, takes the approach of we're not going to necessarily directly address the Holocaust on a, a large social scale, we're going to really try to make it more intimate uh, and look at the individual person. Here we have this uh, fairly interesting perspective. We have Nellie and her her husband, Johnny. Uh, and I would like to make sure we do talk about the character of Johnny. Uh, he kind of gets overshadowed uh, yep. in the story. But nonetheless, I think there's some interesting things there. Uh, but here he is, a Christian that betrays his Jewish wife, right, uh, who... It's in, it's implied had you know converted prior to the war uh, as an effort to sort of offset any sort of persecution and uh, you know here nonetheless is still betrayed and winds up going to the camps. Uh, I found it you know very interesting uh, that they chose to have it play out that way and they have it be uh, and this is I guess a spoiler right that he does betray her and it says something I think a little bit about the Jewish I mean about the German culture. Uh, here was this very highly cultured people uh, and people who had been formed in a Christian context over the course of several centuries uh, that turned on their own and betrayed an uh, important and indispensable part of their own culture. Uh, and I think it says it on a very individual level, but to the attuned viewer, you can then make the, uh, the association to the larger level. Uh, and it allows you as the audience then to be able to discuss uh, what this means, as opposed to sort of a huge political statement. It's very personal, uh, and I, I appreciate that way of, of portraying the idea of the Holocaust, uh, taking a more personal route uh, to it than, say, the more large-scale historical aspect, you know, making it perhaps a melodrama, but having the opportunity then to transform that idea of melodrama into saying something more profound. I do like the intimacy of the movie. I mean, I, I do think in many ways it's not the most cinematic film. Uh, portions of it, especially a lot of the interiors in, in Johnny's apartment, uh, played out more like a stage play to me. And I, I think that's one of the other issues I had with it. Um, but it's, I, I do appreciate its ambition to 
as you said, to take a, a larger issue and to really kind of uh, reduce it down to this very personal story. Uh, but, you know, that mixed with kind of these, I kind of go back to the surrealist sort of pulpy elements or noirish elements. Uh, for some reason, just I, I felt like there wasn't a great cohesion there. Um, and it, it frequently kind of took me out of the film uh, to a degree. Um, but I'll kind of shift uh, topics here and address the elephant in the room. I guess probably my largest issue with the film is just the the amount of uh, suspension and disbelief that the film really required to make its uh, its core storyline work. So just the idea that, okay, here's a person that was scarred physically. Uh, I think it's even said explicitly in the film that, that she was shot in the head and that's what led to her disfigurement. But we never really see the level of disfigurement. Uh, we see some bloody bandages in the beginning. Uh, we don't really see what she looked like before the war. Uh, so when we actually do see her healed, she doesn't look particularly disfigured. I mean, not to say that she should look like the elephant man or something, but, uh, at least to give the audience some sense that, okay, here's someone that's, that's very, that has changed significantly. Um, and, and when she does meet up with Johnny again, just the fact that, okay, he, he recognizes some level of resemblance from the get go. I mean, otherwise he wouldn't want her to, uh, attempt to get her inheritance. Um, and as someone who's married, you know, I, I just kind of think of myself in that position. If, if my wife, came along and her face just happened to look different, would I not recognize her voice? Would I not recognize uh, how she walks or how she carries herself or even how her hands appear? Now, details like that, I, I think that uh, any husband uh, would have a hard time missing. So the film really requires a lot from the audience to say, okay, accept that, you know, Johnny just does not recognize her. And Well, this, oh, go ahead. Uh, well, to me, it's it's a problem, you know. So uh, the only way that I can make that work uh, from a logical standpoint is to say, okay, this is more of an allegory or this is more uh, of a higher level metaphorical kind of story. And we just have to accept that uh, as, as being something that is not realistic. But again, we're kind of combining these elements of a very realistic setting, post-war Germany, Holocaust. I mean, it doesn't get much more real than that combining those elements with this uh, almost surrealist kind of take on identity, uh, again, I felt like there was a clash there. Well, it's assuming that Johnny was a good husband, right? I, I don't see any reason to think he was a good husband. Uh, I think Nellie has a very false idea of her husband and of her past, and that's part of what the movie is about. It's about her being reconciled to reality. Uh, the new reality of her, this kind of post-war identity, post-Holocaust identity, but also coming to terms with what was there before. I mean, Johnny clearly wasn't a good husband. He betrays her. Uh, he doesn't ever, you know, she's giving him every opportunity to uh, kind of justify it. She's helping him to justify it. He doesn't take it. Uh, and I think, you know, considering that he assumed she was dead, there's probably enough of a difference. We, you're right. They don't tell us anything. I actually thought it was a nice touch that there wasn't some big, huge scene of the dramatic taking off of the bandages, you know, avoids that little trap. Uh, just a very nonchalant sort of now the bandages are gone and she's had her surgery and her recovery time. Uh, but I, I do think that it was trying to make the point of 
really you, you wouldn't recognize her because she's not the same person anymore. Her her personality is forever changed. Uh, she she doesn't have the confidence that she once had. She hasn't really emerged uh, as a new person yet. Now the title is a fairly you know worthwhile one to consider, right? Phoenix, the idea of a phoenix rising from the ashes, that which was the name of the um, the novel it was originally based on, right? The Return from the Ashes. Uh, and I think that the idea here is that she's really in the process of becoming a new person. And it's not until that final climax that she really does become the new person. And, uh, she becomes it by kind of owning the past, owning who she was. Uh, and then she, you know, walks out of focus at the very end. Uh, you know, we don't see where she's going, what's happening. We don't follow her. We, we stay there, uh, kind of left behind as she walks away, becoming this new person. Uh, having been reconciled to the past, the truth of what uh, her husband had done, uh, of what had befallen her uh, by her own people, uh, and now uh, damaged for sure, but able to move forward uh, by having accepted the truth of the past. And so I don't think we're, I mean, I do think you're right on level. It is sort of an, an allegory. Uh, it's not meant to be exactly a documentary. Uh, it doesn't take that sort of approach, I think, in its visuals at any point. Uh, and I think that it uh, is well-constructed visually, actually, in many ways. Uh, but I, I do see the point of, uh, is there, I mean, I can't say I know much about plastic surgery in the 40s. I assume it wasn't very good. Uh, <laughs> and so I would assume that they probably wouldn't have been able to reconstruct her face quite this well. Uh, but you have to kind of allow it for the purposes of the, the central plot of the movie. And you either make the choice to go with it or don't. I, I just make the choice to go with it. I guess I wish the, the film had a little more courage to actually make her look more scarred, you know. Um, her makeup is very, kind of makes her look quite gaunt or malnourished or, you know, it, it certainly kind of gives the impression of, okay, here's someone who was in a camp for a period of time and was traumatized, but I, I just don't get the sense of uh, facial, you know, disfigurement having taken place from, from how she's presented. And and part of that kind of makes me feel like, well, maybe they felt that if they went too extreme with that, that the audience would have, you know, more trouble uh, sympathizing with the character. Yeah, I hope that's not the case. But, you know, what else would explain that choice? I mean, these are all choices that were made in how this film was presented. And right. I, I, part of me wishes, again, I do recognize that there's a real understated quality to the entire film and, and how it is presented visually and stylistically. But I think there were some elements that they could have been bolder with, and I think it would have made a more effective film in, in some ways. And and just her appearance um, was one of them. I mean, and, and not to make it, you know, back to the elephant man, not to make it uh, the focus to say, oh, hey, you know, uh, look at how disfigured she is or whatnot. But I think that they could have found or could have found a more subtle way. Um, to do it, but to still, uh, I guess it's a balance of, of, of boldness and subtlety, right? Uh, I think it could have been more direct. Well, I'll agree. I think that there, there's an element to which I wish they had been a little more willing to embrace a stylized approach to the story. You know, there's, there's elements of some of the surrealism in it, uh, particularly as she's, you know, first finding the Phoenix nightclub and you have that, uh, those, the punched up reds and you have some very exaggerated, uh, shadows around. 
Uh, I wish they'd kind of committed themselves to that, you know, and really said, listen, we're going to go this style. We're going to uh, really embrace it and, and take a little bit bolder approach. There is a, a definitely a sort of a hinting at it and then a walking away from it. Uh, you know, it's either approach it with that realistic style or, or really just say we're going all in, right? Uh, not that we need to be David Lynch surreal here, but, you know, just really embracing the the element of we're going to have a bit more specifically noirish look. We're going to have a uh, a surrealist approach to our our storytelling. Uh, I wouldn't have minded that at all. As a matter of fact, I think that's kind of what where its its weakness lies as a film. Is there's a on a part of uh, the cinematographer Hans Fromm and on um, part of Christian Petzold, our director and co screenwriter. Uh, there is an element of trying to have it both ways, and it doesn't. That's probably what keeps it from being a first rate film. Uh, and being instead a very fine film, uh, as, a, as opposed to a truly great film. Yeah, there is kind of a lack of commitment there, uh, that, that makes it feel a little bland to me. But I mean, back to the club, uh, elements, you know, so here we are in the middle of this bombed out setting and, the, you know, this Phoenix club, which I kind of wish I wasn't named Phoenix, you know, for, uh, for as, as subtle as the film is trying to be in many ways, that one just kind of hits you over the head. Uh, you know, it's funny you, you mentioned Lynch because it kind of reminded me of, uh, Club Silencio and, uh, Ball and Drive that, okay, here's this kind of, uh, beacon of, of the past or normalcy or whatever you want to say, uh, or however you want to call it in this, in this bombed out environment. And here's kind of this gateway, right? Into, into, new discovery or re rediscovering her, her identity. And it's, it's a place that, um, it just seems out of, out of place, uh, in, in the setting of the film. So, I, yeah, I, I just struggled with just this mixture of, of, of melodrama and kind of surreal elements that weren't quite committed, you know, in this, uh, very dark and, uh, realistic historical setting. Um, I, we probably could could shift our discussion to the character of Johnny. So another thing that occurred to me, and I was actually talking with a family member about this uh, film uh, recently, and they just happened to see it, and we were discussing it. Uh, I, I think he felt uh, similar to you uh, in, in terms of liking the film more than I did. Uh, one point that he made, which I thought was interesting, was just the idea that, that Johnny could not see his wife as his wife because, you know, call it um, post-traumatic stress disorder or, or just strong denial, you know, in his mind, his wife is dead and he sent her to the gas chamber essentially. So just psychologically uh, he was incapable of seeing her as his wife. Um, I'll just kind of throw it back to you. I mean, do you, do you feel like that's a good explanation or do you feel, feel the film depicts that because I, I, don't, I don't think the film convinces the audience that that's what's going on you know it's an inter- he's an interesting character i i uh, i find that the portrayal of johnny uh the uh the actor uh ronald zerfeld uh and i don't necessarily know any other work I, I he looks familiar to me but i can't necessarily place him with any other particular film i've seen him in um he plays him very enigmatically uh, so we really don't get a chance to know what is his motive or how is he approaching this. And I think that's purposeful 
you know, Nellie's probing him, trying to, you know, particularly when they first meet, he's, she's saying, well, maybe she survived. And he said, nope, he's dead. She's dead. She's dead. She's dead. You know, there's very clear shutting it down, not even allowing it. Uh, he comes off as very cold and controlling. Uh, part of you was wondering about, you know, the idea of a director. Uh, he's directing. He's He's got a, a performance. She's got to play a performance and he's got to make it just so. And telling her how to be herself, basically. And one wonders, is that the way he viewed their marriage in the first place? Did he ever really want to know his wife? Uh, or was it about her being a part uh, in this act, This you know, him being a piano player, her being a singer? Was it just all kind of a show? Uh, I found him to be a very much sort of uh, what you were talking about earlier with the German people, a, a sense of, let's just try to ignore what we did. You know, let's let's maybe try to hide a little bit of what we did. Um, you know, obviously we got to move on, you know, find the inheritance, whatever. I mean, he's, he's a much more wicked character than I think that probably most German people are, but he, uh, he did have, I think, I think an element of him sort of metaphorically being there as, as the German people. I, I'm going to try to just move forward. I'm going to push forward, uh, and, you know, just kind of try to reorganize this so that we can get what we you know, something good out of this and move forward and ha- not have anything to do with this anymore. So it's a defense mechanism. In your mind, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that, that's the only way I, I think that character works. And, and like you said, we really know very little about him, and, and that's okay. You know, one wonders. He seems like a kind of strong, able-bodied type. You know, one wonders what he did during the war, or if he somehow uh, evaded military service. But that's not clear. Uh, probably not very important to the story. Uh, but uh, there certainly is more mystery around him than than maybe an audience would want. Um, but he's, yeah, I, again, I find myself trying to uh, justify <laughs> the uh, the issues I have with the film in some way uh, to make them work as an audience member, and, and uh, I find myself reaching quite a bit. Well, no doubt there are some weaknesses in its script. It, it doesn't have a perfectly orchestrated script where all motives are clearly known, which isn't always a bad thing, right? It's good to have a certain ambiguity. I, you know, I, I don't mind Johnny being kind of a mystery uh, and not really clearly known to us. Uh, but the, you're right. I mean, for example, the we haven't talked uh, much on uh, Lene, uh, the uh, friend uh, who really rescues Nellie and gets her set up and has this whole idea of that we'll take your inheritance, we'll go to Palestine, we'll be a part of this Jewish state, you know, get away from all of this. And we don't really get to understand her and, and what's driving her throughout this story. Uh, and I do think that's kind of where there is a weakness. The It doesn't populate its story with a great many uh, interesting supporting characters uh, on which to balance this central story of Nellie and Johnny. And maybe that's where you're... Uh, uh, initial concern about, you know, how do you take this melodrama and put it in, the, in this context? Maybe if you fleshed out a little bit more the reality of the, you know, background characters, so to speak, the, the German people, the Holocaust survivors, the war survivors, if we had had more of them coloring this story, would it have helped uh, cement it in a certain way? Would it have helped it land and resonate a, a bit more? Uh, I think it works very well in its main characters. The supporting characters, not as much. Uh, they're not quite as uh, well refined as I would like to see, um, and not through any fault of the of the actors, but really just the fact that they're not giving enough 
to help us to understand them. Yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, back to the character of Lene or, or, or Lena, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name, I guess, but, uh, you know, she's somebody that, again, a mysterious side character, right? Uh, mm-hmm. she clearly has some knowledge of Nellie's past and is trying to steer her away from that and, and toward the future, uh, away from Europe and, uh, her eventual demise in the film seemed a bit forced to me to a degree to kind of punctuate uh, uh, some drama. But, I, I mean, I, it does serve a, a function in the story to kind of push Nellie along to uh, to rediscover her, her new self. But, uh, yeah, that, that is a relationship that I think could have been fleshed out a little bit more and maybe a little less time in the uh, apartment with Johnny and a little more time in the apartment with, um, with her friend. Well, it, it strikes me as that really what we have here is some characters that exist for the service of the plot, not as their own character in their own right. And, uh, that's, that's the ultimate failing there, right? It's not that they have, um, a, a clear definable motivation. I mean, Lene, you, you get that. Okay. She wants to be able to get to a Jewish state makes all the sense of the world. You just went through this. You're Jewish. Let's get away from these people. Let's find a place where we can, you know, really support and you know build up a safe haven for Jews in light of what we've just had. But why does she give up on it? You know, we don't necessarily understand that, right? And uh, so, if we had a sense of well, what really triggers her specifically to abandon this? Uh, is it is it a sense of despair uh, that you know what this is all a false idea that Palestine, Israel, that just isn't going to work out? It's just a, a fool's errand for us to pursue it. We don't really understand that, and that makes her ultimate demise less interesting uh, and less impactful uh, because it, it's just we don't have a, a full grasp of this character and what, what she herself is going through. Uh, but I do think we do have a really successful pr- presentation of Nellie uh, as, as the central figure here. I think that that character is very well drawn out. I think Nina Haas uh, gives a, a really a very subtle, very astute performance uh, I was impressed with, you know, small gestures she adds, uh, the way when they have, uh, she and Johnny have that kiss, it's more or less just sort of a cover, just so people maybe don't recognize her. He kind of leans in, kisses her, uh, and then, you know, he leaves and he's just whatever, doesn't care. But she has this moment where she kind of gives a little stumble, you know, almost as if she'd had her breath taken away from her. Uh, you know, just small little touches like that that she flushes out without dialogue even. Uh, to really give this character a certain resonance uh, that really pays off uh, as the progress, as the story progresses. Yeah, I agree. I, I think her performance is outstanding. Uh, I can't really argue with that. Uh, and, and like you said, it, it's really those little subtle uh, cues uh, that we see at various moments in the film, uh, especially one that stands out is in the nightclub. And the first time when she sees Johnny, or I think it was the first time uh, she saw him, and calls out his name and he basically ignores her and, or doesn't recognize her. And it's, it's like she got shot in the heart. I mean, just, just her reaction is so powerful yet. It's, it's understated. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen her in any other films? Not that I can think of, you know, this is actually, I think this is the first time I've seen uh Petzold's work. And, um, I mean, I've heard, but I just haven't seen before. And, uh, it's an interesting little collaboration here. It's like a De Niro and Scorsese or something that they've got going on there. Uh, 
Yeah, I guess um, their fifth film together, I guess. I, heard, I think it's their sixth. Is it? Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's obviously the, the two of them have a, a, a director-actor relationship that's, uh, you know, something that's really working for both of them. Uh, I, you know, can't say I've, I can understand the progression of it, where they've gone over the course of those films, just having not seen the previous ones. Uh, but certainly whatever has worked, whatever they have worked for a great performance in this particular film. Yeah. First time I, well, I should say the only other time I've seen her in a film was, um, a most wanted man, um, Anton Corbin's film. With, oh, you know what? I did see that. I don't remember in it. So. Yeah. She, she played, uh, kind of Philip Seymour Hoffman's right hand man or right hand woman or whatever, however you want to say, not to sound sexist. Uh, and it's a very small role in the film, but it's memorable. Uh, they kind of have this interesting relationship in the film. You almost get the sense that there's uh, a slight romantic uh, connection there, but um, it's never really borne out in the film. But I, I remember her uh, in that and her making an impact there. Uh, I think most of that film was shot in Germany. There are quite a few German actors in the film. So right, it made sense that she was cast because um, I I presume she's probably a pretty big star in Germany uh, if if she's broken through on the international scene at this point. And that's you know you mentioned the international scene. Uh, part of me is interested as to why is this movie so popular here in America? You know, of all the movies to have imported over, and you know, of, of all these German films, you know, one of the most successful. Uh, to land across the Atlantic here is now Phoenix. And I really can't necessarily say I understand quite why this one would pick up and resonate with American audiences. Uh, it's, it's a good film. I mean, I really do think it's a good film, uh, but there's nothing about it that strikes me as subject matter wise that would really draw people's attention. There's nothing about it in terms of its execution that makes it so clearly superior to other works, particularly uh, other European films uh, of, of the past few years that have made it their way across here. So I, I do find it interesting. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts as to why you think this one in particular might be connecting with audiences? I'm, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I get the sense it's connecting with critics more than audiences. I, I feel like it's one of those films that uh, you kind of get that critical bandwagon rolling where, a few respected critics give a favorable review and uh, the rest of them kind of jump on the bad wagon. I, maybe I'm, I'm selling the film short, but I, I don't think it's any secret by now that I, I feel like it's overrated. I, I don't think, it, again, I don't think it's a terrible film. I think there's a lot to admire in it, uh, mostly from, from Nina Haas's performance more than anything. Uh, but I, I do think it's, maybe kind of a case of, well, here's something different that came along, kind of caught on critically, uh, people that are following the art house circles, uh, were willing, uh, to, to seek it out and, and, and see it in the, in the film or in the, uh, in the theater, I should say. And probably has gotten pretty good play on streaming services as well. That's where I initially saw it was on Netflix actually. Uh, so hard for me to explain, I guess. I, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that there's a, uh, a cultural <laughs> trend in, a, in America, uh, toward these kinds of films. So it's hard for me to explain it. Right. Well, there certainly wouldn't be a large scale cultural. I mean, there never is, right? Towards, yeah. towards films or of any nature. I, I think perhaps you're right. It does have that 
sense of a critical bandwagon uh, that emerged. Who knows how those start, but they just do. Uh, I I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a little bit of a sense of our own post 9-11 sense of, you know, what's our identity, you know, and kind of coping with that. Maybe there's a little bit of subtle psychological connection going on there with critics. Uh, but where, why the art house, you know, film goers would have necessarily responded so well to this, I just don't necessarily see quite where the connection is. Um, and it's not that I think it's a bad film. I do think it's a very good film, but it, it, it definitely does strike me as a film that has found a reputation that, I just can't understand why it would and other films wouldn't have necessarily gotten that particular reputation. Yeah. Well, I'd like to go back to the, um, maybe some more technical aspects with the film and just its visual style and, uh, it's cinematography in particular. It's a very mannered film. Uh, certainly not, uh, a documentary style in any sense, as you said, uh, I felt the aspect ratio was an interesting choice for such an intimate story. I, I tend to think of, you know, the, the two, three, five, uh, or two, three, nine, whatever you prefer, uh, to be more for more epic storytelling. I mean, granted, you could say, well, this is an epic setting, uh, an intimate epic, uh, a la the, uh, the deer hunter or something to that effect. But I, I, I did feel like the aspect ratio was kind of wasted on this film. Uh, it strikes me as, as something that's probably more um, in the 185 realm, uh, but that's just the the cinematography nerd in me uh, coming out. Well, I will say this is probably the the radical zealot in me. I, I personally think two three five works better for almost every movie that's going to be made. I just I love the ratio. I love what it allows for. Uh, it can it be used poorly, of course it can. Uh, other times where it has its drawbacks, you know, it, it certainly doesn't give the sense of visual height the way uh, a 166 or a 185 ratio does, or, you know, when you shoot an IMAX. Uh, but I do think it ultimately is a, a much more visually satisfying ratio in so many ways. I actually thought it was a nice touch to put this in a scope ratio. Uh, you know, it's true, it is very intimate. Uh, but I love the way, as I was watching a second time, I paid close attention to some of the framing they did and just subtle gestures of how they frame her being entrapped, you know, different things around her in the background, the sense of she's never free and she's never really free until that very final scene. Uh, so they do some neat framing devices with it. Uh, there's also ways in which because of that scope, uh, you can have her and Johnny in a scene and have them be really a, on such visual different lengths from each other that, yes, it's intimate. Yes, they're in this tiny little apartment, and yet they're kind of apart uh, because here she is way off to frame left. He's way off to frame right. And so it, it reinforces that for us subtly uh, in the visuals. So I thought they used it pretty well uh, overall. Um, I, I, did, I did think it was a, a probably overall smart choice on their part. And I, I was convinced this film was shot digitally when I, I saw it, but it was actually shot on uh, Super 35. Uh, I think the lenses they use just, uh, I think they use Leica lenses, um, super sharp. I mean, it just kind of gives that uh, ultra sharp look uh, and makes it clear that the line between film and, and digital is, is pretty much blurred at this point. Well, it's really a matter of just how do you, I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do in terms of how you receive uh, the visual data, right? You, your, your lighting, your lenses, 
uh, then all your post-production work. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's being shot on film, but the way it's being interpreted or, or processed is almost with a digital mindset. Uh, so it's, yeah, it is a blurred line right now between digital and, and film, uh, which is neither here, neither good nor bad. It's, it's just, uh, there's a, there's a definite visual image that you want to go for, uh, and do it well. I think they, I think they do it pretty well in this. I was you know impressed and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts, Matt. The, the final scene, uh, is all done in this very overexposed, you know, it's very bright. Uh, and, you know, I thought of myself, well, you know, with the way the story is unfolding, yeah, it would be a, a lunchtime setting. It'd be, you know, kind of a, uh, a day in which you, you know, hopefully have a, you know, joyous celebration. She's returning home kind of thing. And yet, uh, it was a very interesting choice. Usually, you know, you try to do some dark shadows, you know, contrasting, maybe set it towards, you know, the, the approaching night, you know, it's going to be a little more dramatic lighting and, or you just do something to try to punch up the visuals and they choose to go very, very bright, uh, unre- unrealistically bright in all honesty, particularly when they move into the interiors. Uh, but I think it pays off well. It's sort of this subverting of expectations. You have what should be just very happy, light, go lucky evening, uh, or, uh, you know, get together, uh, lunch and social. And, you know, it's not really everybody there is kind of quiet, subdued. Uh, then we as the audience are cued into, you know, what's really happening between Johnny and Nellie. And I thought it was a neat little play that they had there uh, with the lights kind of misleading us, the lighting misleading us. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, the illumination of not only the scene, but the story, right? So uh, that kind of bright overexposed setting is illuminating uh, the, the truth of, of, uh, the situation and illuminating the truth to Johnny, but also, you know, back to the, the title of Phoenix emerging from the ashes, emerging from the flames. Uh, so here, here's the new Nelly emerging from this, uh, this light or, or walking into the light. And we kind of see that in the beginning too, when we see the title treatment on uh, the title card come up, they're driving across that bridge and the oncoming lights lead to this, this fade to white. So I, I think light is an important kind of symbolic um, element in the film, but that is a good point. I didn't really think about um, the lighting in that last scene, but I mean, now that you mention it, it certainly was uh, overexposed or bright or, I mean, not garishly so or distractingly so, but worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'll, I'll um, throw the the topic of the Criterion release uh, over to you. I I haven't seen the disc myself. Uh, I do love the cover art. I think it's a beautiful cover. It is. It is gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's one of their their best from the past year, I would say. But uh, have you um, checked out any of the supplements or taken a look at um, anything beyond the film on there? I did. I I actually did watch through them all. Uh, The so the, the different features are this. They have a, a conversation with Petzold and, and uh, Nina Haas. And uh, I think that it's a very well done one. It's one that focuses a lot on the character of Nellie and how they understand Nellie. And, uh, you know, particularly it's it's a lot of conversation about sort of the women of that generation in Germany and uh, what it was like for women of that generation, their connection to their husband and identity with husband. Uh, you know, it all, it does get a little bit into their, 
relationship as a director and as an actress. Uh, I thought, you know, they touched on kind of their, their, their thoughts, uh, pretty well in it, uh, about how they work together. Uh, so it's a good solid 20 minutes, uh, interesting enough to listen to. Uh, I was more interested in the, um, uh, it's about 12 minutes with the cinematographer, Hans Frohm. Uh, I really enjoyed just hearing his thoughts of how he did it. He kind of responds to my criticism, right? That he wanted to be more subtle with the surrealistic elements in it. Uh, he ably uh, communicates his thoughts on it. I still ultimately think he's wrong, uh, but I'm just a jerk that way. <laughs> and uh, then they have a, a, about another 20 minutes or so of making a Phoenix documentary uh, with different actors and crews. It really has more of the EPK kind of uh, feel to it. Uh, a little more thoughtful uh, than your typical uh, making of documentary, but nothing particularly uh, special or interesting about it. Uh, so the supplementals on the disc are, are good. There's nothing to write home about. Certainly not anything there that's worth uh, looking at if you're not a fan of the film. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, certainly gives you a little bit more insight into some of the thought process that went into the crafting of the story and particularly the portrayal of the character of Nellie. Yeah, I just have to go back to the cover again. You know, even though I'm not a huge fan of the film, if Criterion made a poster of that cover, I'd probably buy it. Well, now we know another way they can do some fundraising. <laughs> probably approaching the end of our conversation here. Um, so we can kind of summarize our thoughts and, and talk about whether or not we feel this is a, a worthy addition to the Criterion Collection. Well, to summarize my thoughts, here's what I think. I think Phoenix would be, uh, you know, you know, it's the kind of movie that I think merits an inclusion in a top ten list of the year. Uh, you know, it's very well acted. It's a it's a good, solid story with ideas. Uh, it's not perfect. It's not the kind of film that I would say you single out as your as your top pick, but nonetheless, it's in your upper echelon for a given year. That being said, it's not probably one you're going to necessarily think about in another five years when you're looking at one of the great films of recent memory. Uh, I do think that it ultimately probably doesn't really deserve to be included in the Criterion Collection. As much as I like it, I don't know how important of a movie it is uh, for contemporary cinema. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily is going to give any sort of new insight into German film, uh, into how we portray the Holocaust, how we portray uh, the human person. So it's it's got a lot going for it, but I wouldn't necessarily consider this to be criterion worthy. Yeah, no surprise. I, I would agree with you. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a film worth seeing. I, I think for for cinephiles out there, it's it's not a waste of your time, and it's something that I think certain people are going to really like and really um, enjoy and and really find memorable. Again, I go back to Nina Haas's performance, and it's worth seeing for that alone. Uh, again, it requires a lot of suspension and disbelief. Uh, you have to be comfortable with sort of this noirish, pulpy, melodramatic take on on the uh, post-Holocaust um, environment of of Europe uh, in, in 1945. So, if you're if you're willing to stomach all that and willing to to kind of just go along with where the film is taking you, I think it's something you, you may enjoy. Uh, I, I found some of the logical, you know, uh, or the, uh, the leaps that, that were, were required to be uh, insurmountable to a degree, but 
uh, still a lot to admire. I think visually it has some interesting things to say, despite some choices that I felt were questionable. Uh, in terms of inclusion in the Criterion Collection, you know, it, it strikes me as this is kind of one of those films that Criterion probably was able to get uh, licensed to and saw it as an opportunity to you know, maybe have a higher yield in terms of sales here. Every once in a while there's a, a film that comes along that maybe did well at the box office or uh, has some popular recognition that they're able to include in the uh, collection. And I'm okay with that. You know, uh, if, if this kind of lines the coffers for Criterion a little bit, allows them to put out maybe something that's not going to sell as well or something a little more obscure, uh, I'm okay with that. I mean, we think about The Rock and Armageddon and <laughs> some of these other titles in the past that may have fallen into that camp as well. But this is certainly not uh, comparable to those films, but it strikes me as kind of a title of opportunity and uh, something that's come out, um, you know, something, a contemporary film that, that has made a mark uh, that will hopefully help Criterion maybe get some more notoriety. Well, I think that'll wrap up our, our conversation of Phoenix. Uh, it's, I, you know, a film that I think we both enjoyed to a degree, but both had issues with. Uh, so there will certainly be times where we don't agree, and I think that's a healthy thing, a good thing. Right. No, well, hey, Matt, you can't be right all the time. Well, right back at you. 